The coronavirus pandemic has cast a lurid spotlight on the World Health Organization, and by extension, its parent, the United Nations. You might recall that at the start of the pandemic, there were charges that China had manipulated and politicized the decision-making at the World Health Organization to cover up for its failings regarding the COVID-19 outbreak. To talk about that and more broadly about the United Nations itself, I'm joined today by Hillel Neuer, the executive director of UN Watch, a non-governmental organization based in Geneva, Switzerland. UN Watch monitors the United Nations and reports on when the UN deviates from its charter principles. Hillel is an international lawyer, writer, diplomat, and activist for human rights. He is an expert on the United Nations, and he's been a vocal critic of that organization. And he's been quoted in newspapers and media outlets all over the world. He's testified at the United Nations itself and also at the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives. I got to know Hillel's work and the work of UN Watch while researching my book on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, What Justice Demands. In particular, I cite some of the eye-opening research that they've been doing. Hillel, welcome. I'm glad to have you on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I think a good place to start uh, this conversation about the UN generally is to go to the story that's given so much attention to the World Health Organization uh, and, and sort of what happened at the beginning of the pandemic, and it's still ongoing. I wonder if you can give us sort of a snapshot of what what were the accusations, what is the evidence, and what was China's involvement here in the World Health Organization about the pandemic? Certain facts are clear. The uh, World Health Organization and its chief, Dr. Tedros of Ethiopia, he's not a medical doctor, that's a, a doctorate in, in another field. Um, he uh, praised China's response to the coronavirus and quite strongly, uh, without reservation. So in January, at a time when China was not really cooperating with the world and not sharing information and was actually resisting attempts by the World Health, Organi Health, by the world Health Organization to declare a pandemic and to sort of warn the world, China was sending the opposite message and they were finding reinforcement for, and endorsement from the World Health Organization. So that was a terrible thing, and, and most people recognize that, uh, even if other aspects about what to do about it are disputed. I think everyone recognizes, because you can read the tweets of Dr. Tedros and see the announcement by, World, World, by the World Health Organization saying that we're not declaring a public, uh, public health emergency of international concern, uh, which is the term that they use and that things are okay, there's not human-to-human -human transmission and so forth. So obviously it was things that China was, was sharing, and clearly there were people in the WHO who did see the problems, but it, it's quite clear that there was pressure from China. Now, the question is, why was there pressure from China? Why did the WHO act the way they did? And there are other examples of, you know, there's a famous example on video where one of the top officials of the WHO is asked point blank by, I believe it was a Hong Kong journalist, uh, you know, um, why, you know, whether, you know, things about, about Taiwan, for example, because Taiwan did sound the alarm and yet China wouldn't let Taiwan participate, uh, wouldn't let the WHO allow Taiwan to participate in WHO as a normal uh, member. And this individual, you know, hung up the, the call and turned off their video and wouldn't answer things. It was sort of a very extreme example of how the WHO wouldn't even address the issue of Taiwan. Um, and uh, it's an example of, of clearly how China has a significant influence. The other examples that I would mention, something that we exposed, is that it turns out the, w, the World Health Organization, the WHO, 
has what they call goodwill ambassadors. Uh, these are kind of brand ambassadors for the WHO and other UN entities have them as well. And they're meant to promote the good work of that UN entity. And it's fine that they have celebrities or others. And it turns out that out of nine goodwill ambassadors, two of them uh, at the WHO are number one, the, the, the dictator's wife, Peng Yuyan, who actually is as the status of a general in the Chinese military. And she's one of the good ambass goodwill ambassadors of China. It's something no one really focused on before. And another one is a guy named James Chow, who is a journalist, in quotes, a journalist, with Chinese state TV, uh, where his job is to be a daily mouthpiece of Chinese television. He does it in English. He's actually born and raised in England and somehow became uh, kind of a Tokyo Rose uh, or a Lord Ha Ha, you know, famous uh, propagandists who uh, you know, for, for the Axis during World War II. And this guy, James Chow, despite being born in London and having attended some fancy schools in Britain, has basically sold his soul to the Chinese Communist Party and will present Chinese government news the way they present it, which is not real news, and even presented a taped confession, a, a videotaped confession of a British citizen in China who was falsely accused and was forced to confess uh, and was drugged and you know chained and gave this confession. And this guy, James Chow, presented it as news. So that's James Chow. And he is one of the goodwill ambassadors of the WHO. Surprise, surprise, for the past year, he spent most of his time saying, I'm a WHO goodwill ambassador. Let me tell you how great China has been in its coronavirus response. He didn't say a word about how China muzzled those who tried to sound the alarm in Wuhan and elsewhere, put in prison, disappeared, arrested in the middle of the night. Um, James Chow on his uh, ubiquitous social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, writing op-eds in newspapers and his own uh, video interviews that he does that are sponsored by Chinese propaganda, uh, says, I'm a WHO goodwill ambassador and China is doing a great job of coronavirus. So this is just a snapshot of how China has to some degree subverted the World Health Organization. And uh, that explains a little bit of how we are where we are today. So I wanted to pick up on one of the points you raised regarding Taiwan. So one of the things that I've been impressed with is just how quickly Taiwan responded. They, they seems like their public health uh, uh, infrastructure is really robust and, and they were able to get on ahead of the curve with the pandemic compared to many other countries. And it, you know, I, I've heard uh, experts on public health and, and infectious disease say we have a lot to learn from Taiwan. And yet one, one of the things, I mean, you mentioned that China has put pressure to prevent Taiwan from be, being a member from uh, the yes. World Health yes. What's no, going no, on there? Nor a member or even really, you know, as an observer, yeah. So how is Taiwan able to, I mean, it doesn't, it seems like both an injustice towards Taiwan, it seems like they have a lot to offer and also, an impediment to them if they don't get information from sort of the clearinghouse. It, it is a serious impediment. Look, Taiwan has, I don't know if their population is 25 million people, I don't know exactly, but it's a significant population. Uh, there are human beings there. It's a country which seems, certainly with the coronavirus and other aspects, to be a model country. And the world needs to know more about Taiwan. The world needs to be more like Taiwan. As you said, Taiwan was very early in trying to warn the world. Um, and yet, uh, absurdly, Taiwan is denied their seat at the WHO table. And there's several aspects to this. So one, of course, is the political aspect, which, well, we know that China doesn't want other countries to recognize Taiwan. 
and those that dare to have relations with Taiwan are punished by China and everyone's afraid of China. China is just, you know, throwing its weight around. They're huge. And so they did so at the World Health Organization. I should mention that, you know, when all of this began, we began to see how the WHO was subverted. Something else that we, we haven't paid attention to, maybe others did, but the current head of the WHO is Dr. Tedros, former minister in Ethiopia. The day, the day after he was elected, if not the day of it, the day after he was elected, one of the first countries that he welcomed uh, was um, was uh, China. And he declared his support for the uh, one state uh, China policy, um, namely that they don't recognize Taiwan. And it's clear that China supported uh, the election of Dr. Tedros in his campaign. There was an election, it was contested. China backed him and the moment he was elected, he actually went to China during his campaign. The first thing he did was to say, I'm gonna support China in basically keeping out Taiwan, uh, denying them their place at a table and recognition. It's worse than that though, because uh, prior, the, the one previous to Dr. Tedros was a woman named Margaret Chan and she was the head of the WHO for about 10 years. Now, when she was elected, she, they said she was from Hong Kong. So, you know, we knew the distinction between China and Hong Kong and a medical doctor from, from Hong Kong who had some position in the medical establishment there, she gets elected, nothing wrong with that. What I didn't realize at the time, I wasn't paying attention to it, was the fact that China was a major supporter of her campaign. It was actually, when she was elected, they boasted about the fact that they got her elected. And indeed, when she finished her term after 10 years, she went on to become a member of not exactly the Chinese Politburo, but something similar uh, as a reward for her good service as um, head of WHO. And indeed, during her time in the WHO, she went along with China in blocking Taiwan from participating. So uh, you realize that uh, China is subverting the World Health Organization to deny Taiwan a place at the table. And exactly as you said, what are the implications? Well, if the WHO means anything, it means sharing information. And Taiwan was not getting access to that information in the, in the uh, you know, with, with the speed and depth that it requires. So there's, there is uh, some connection with Taiwan. They do have some access, but it's limited. And, you know, it works both ways. Both the people of Taiwan deserve to get the world health information immediately, like every other country. And we need to get their information to prevent things like Wuhan happening again. So it's really awful. And... Uh, sadly, our governments are weak and are not good at fighting back against China. Now, if I'm just correct me if I'm wrong, but I was reading up about Taiwan's role. So, if you step out of the sort of WHO context, Taiwan used to be a member of the UN, and it, it sort of it was pushed out of its seat, and and sort of communist China took it over in '71. And is that right? And then Taiwan was made an appeal to sort of rejoin as a member of the UN, but that was sort of denied. So in effect, it's, it's also been excluded. I don't know what the status is now, but it's been excluded out of the UN for decades now. Yes, that's true. I mean, it was the seat of China that at the UN, it was recognized as, as, the, as those who, who live in Taiwan, the government of Taiwan effectively, had the China seat. Uh, they had the China seat up until the early 70s, when Nixon went to China and, and it was decided by the great powers that they would recognize uh, the communist regime in Beijing. So indeed it was 
Taiwan effectively forfeited their right to speak for the name of China, for China, and since then never got their seat at the table. So it's, you know, Palestine was declared a state, um, even though they launched thousands of rockets at their neighbors in Israel, and even though Hamas terrorist group rules Gaza, Palestinian Authority incites to racism and anti-Semitism, and uh, it too has supported terrorism at various times. They fund terrorists, and you know, they don't have effective control over a territory, and yet they're called a state by the United Nations. Yet Taiwan, which has every element of statehood under the under international law, they have defined territory, they have effective control, they are peace loving, they are democratic, they're not lobbing rockets at their neighbors, they are denied membership at the UN and in related UN bodies. So it's an outrage and it's unjust. So, well, I want to step back a bit from the the sort of what started this conversation about the WHO and sort of look at some of the, the uh, monitoring that you guys do of the UN as a, a body that is to protect freedom and individual rights, something I care deeply about. Um, I'm passionate about individual rights. I think they're really important. And I want you to share with us a bit about the what you're seeing with the UN's watchdog for human rights, the UN Rights Council, the Human, human Rights Council of the UN. And, you know, I've heard you say that some of its activities, you've likened them to a theater of the absurd. So I just shared with us a bit what you're seeing in your study of the Human Rights Council. Well, the Human Rights Council is the highest human rights body of the United Nations. It's the intergovernmental body. It's made up of 47 member states, but every other country is present. So I'm Canadian. Uh, my country, Canada, is not a member of the Human Rights Council, but they are an observer state and they participate. They speak, they can introduce resolutions, they just don't vote at the end. So that is the Human Rights Council, an intergovernmental body. Its founding was noble. It was founded, it was originally called the Commission on Human Rights, founded in 1946 by Eleanor Roosevelt, great humanitarian of the age. Joining her was uh, Vice Chairman René Cassin, French legal philosopher. Together in their early days, the Commission on Human Rights at the United Nations managed to adopt the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which for the most part um, is an excellent document and one that has inspired human rights activists and victims around the world. So that was the good part of the Commission on Human Rights back in the 1940s. However, over time, this body became a body of governments, not of eminent idealists like Eleanor Roosevelt, and it became governments and not any government, but rather ironically, paradoxically, absurdly, those who chose to join most tended to be governments whose only expertise on human rights uh, was in how to systematically violate the human rights of their own people. So regular members over the years were China, the regime of Omar al-Bashir of Sudan was a regular member of Sudan, of the Human Rights Council, despite being accused of genocide and being wanted by the International Criminal Court for what they did in Darfur. And so that was the Human Rights Commission. It was a failure, uh, pointing the finger half the time at Israel in one-sided resolutions that gave a free pass to terrorists, be the Hamas, Islamic Jihad, or the PLO, and uh, gave, turned a blind eye to the worst abuses. Their resolutions on Saudi Arabia, China never happened. They got a free pass. And so Kofi Annan in the year 2005 said, it's not working. It's selective. It's politicized. It's casting a shadow upon the reputation of the United Nations as a whole. And he proposed to scrap it. Never happened before. That a UN chief would talk about scrapping one of their own major entities of the UN. Uh, but indeed, it was uh, embraced, his plan, and he called for creating a new and approved Human Rights Council. So today we meet in September 2020, and it is uh, 14 years after the creation of the new and improved Human Rights Council. 
And who are the members today of the new and improved Human Rights Council? Well, you have a few democracies, Germany, Australia, a few others. But then you also have, um, and I should say that Kofi Annan, his major reform was to say that the new and improved Human Rights Council would have standards, would have criteria. Countries who would be elected would have to show that they promote and protect human rights, that they have a record. Member states would have to, um, uh, uh, have a, uh, would have to uphold the highest standards of human rights. So where do we stand today, 14 years later, at the new and improved Human Rights Council, the members include Libya, a failed state that treats black African migrants like slaves, Qatar, which also exploits foreign workers, treats them like slaves. You have uh, Eritrea, another failed state where people flee um, in Africa to go to Europe, to go to Israel, to go to other countries. Why are Eritreans fleeing? Because there's uh, enforced conscription, which is basically a form of uh, slavery, enforced forced labor. Uh, and so that's a member of the council. Mauritania, where there is literal slavery in Mauritania, is a member of the council. Venezuela, one of the worst regimes on the planet, millions have fled after Maduro destroyed the country and Chavez before him. Venezuela was just elected last year to the council. Bangladesh, the Philippines. Um, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, which is neither democratic nor a republic. These are some of the members of the council that make up at least 50% of the council. And so you should not be surprised that with a few exceptions, uh, most of the world's worst regimes get a free pass. There's never been a human rights council resolution for human rights victims in Saudi Arabia. China, one fifth of the world's population, never had a resolution, no special session, no commission of inquiry. These are tools that the council has that can spotlight victims, that can spotlight abusers, that can speak out for victims. Uh, Turkey, country that fired 100,000 employees, civil servants, judges, university deans, leading jailer of journalists, never been a single resolution, no urgent session, no commission of inquiry. Uh, Pakistan, you know, Christian mother of five was put on death row uh, for the crime of blasphemy, accused of blasphemy. She didn't blaspheme, but even if she did, it's a human right under freedom of speech. No, uh, she was on death row for nine years, just released. Um, and, you know, Cuba, never been a resolution. It's a police state. Dissidents are thrown in prison. Famous dissident, uh, Oswaldo Payat, was, uh, you know, suddenly killed in a car accident. People believe the regime was behind it. Never been a resolution, special session or commission of inquiry on the police state of Cuba. So by and large, with a few exceptions, most of the world's worst regimes are either elected or get a few pass at the world's highest human rights body. And you mentioned earlier, so this is one of the things that I, I sort of, how I got to know about UN Watch is you mentioned all the countries that, you know, on any reasonable standard should be getting uh, cited and, and spotlighted for their actions. Uh, then they're, they're not getting any kind of attention. And yet what, what I did notice, and this is really eye-opening, I think a few years ago, you published a, uh, an analysis of uh, resolutions at the UN and, and by a wide margin, the, the one country that there was sort of a disproportionate or outsized focus uh, at the Human Rights uh, Council was Israel, which, you know, people, you know, it's a very controversial issue how Israel deals with the Palestinians and so on. But even if you, even if you're sympathetic to that kind of perspective, it's, it just seems completely crazy that, you know, a country where there's real freedom is continually spotlighted and has its own kind of focus at this, and, and countries where there's literal slavery and where women are not permitted to, to go out of their houses, th there's total silence on that. Well, how do you, I mean, what, 
so I, I get what the sort of prevents those countries from getting cited. Like I can see them playing maybe together and, and conspiring to deflect, but why is there, why do you think there's such a focus on Israel? Yeah, well, look, uh, one thing that should be noted is the focus on Israel is certainly the dictatorships support it. Uh, look, let, let's look at, at how it begins, uh, how it manifests itself and, uh, and, and where it comes from. So first, uh, we're going to have a session next week of the Human Rights Council, the 45th session, and uh, we'll meet for three weeks. There'll be one day on the whole world called Agenda Item 4, universal uh, you know, situations around the world that require the council's attention. That's where you could, if you want to, address any country in the world. Then a few days later, there'll be Agenda Item 7, human rights violations in the occupied Arab territory, in Palestine and other occupied Arab territories. So one agenda item, one day for the world, and one agenda item, one day on Israel alone. So no other country in the world is subjected to that kind of treatment. Not Syria, which uh, has half a million people killed, millions have fled, the country has been destroyed, uh, possibly genocide has been committed there. Not North Korea, one of the most horrific places on the planet. Um, not Sudan. I mean, go, go down the list of the world's worst abusers by any metric. Um, you know, not China, which has a fifth of the world's population, denied any form of basic freedom, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, completely crushed in China. They are not, none of these countries is addressed under its own agenda item. If at all they are addressed, and that's the question, but if at all they are addressed, it's under the general agenda item of human rights situations. Only Israel gets subjected to its own agenda item. So, uh, that's one significant way how Israel is uh, singled out at the Human Rights Council. The other way is the resolutions. When we uh, look at the resolutions, we see that Israel um, gets typically about 50% of the resolutions. Indeed, in the first 10 years of the council, we counted all the resolutions that there were on countries, on Syria, on Myanmar, on North Korea, and we counted all told 67 resolutions in the first 10 years of the Human Rights Council from 2006 to 2016. 67 resolutions condemning countries, We're not talking about resolutions that praise countries, we have those too. Then you count the resolutions that condemn Israel, and you get 68. So more resolutions condemning Israel than on the rest of the world combined. In those resolutions, what's in those resolutions? Are they balanced? Okay, Israel's being singled out, but they don't know. There's only condemnation of Israel, there's no mention of rockets, thousands of rockets fired by Hamas and Islamic Jihad into Israeli civilian populations, sending flaming balloons with grenades to land at kindergarten, you know, courtyards, play, playgrounds, uh, stabbings of innocent people in, in, on the street, in pizza shops, suicide bombings. None of this is mentioned. Only Israel is condemned. So what you have here is really a systematic attempt to demonize and delegitimize the Jewish state at the UN's highest human rights body. Who is behind it? Who supports it? Those who bring the resolutions are the Palestinians together with the Arab League and the Organization of Islamic Countries, the OIC. And they introduce the resolutions. Why do they get adopted? Well, the Islamic countries are powerful. They have maybe, you know, 25%, a little bit more, maybe 30% of the UN member states belong to the Islamic group. That includes both 22 Arab countries and uh, more than 30 other countries that are Muslim majority, but not Arab. And they're very, a very significant bloc. And they wield influence in the African group and the Asian group. And um, many countries want to vote with them. If you don't vote with them, you don't get their support for things that you want. So 56 Islamic countries introduce a resolution. You want to join with them, looking out for your interests. 
Your country may also be afraid of terrorism. If you vote against a resolution uh, condemning Israel, maybe you'll be singled out for terrorism by ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah, you know, who knows. Um, many European countries in the 1970s and 80s did uh, very, you know, did Faust, made Faustian bargains with the PLO so that they wouldn't bomb an attack in Rome or in France and they'd do it somewhere else. And in exchange, they gave them various, you know, benefits, including political support. So the same thing happens at the Human Rights Council. Oil, the Islamic states still have oil. Uh, people need oil. Um, and I would say, um, uh, you know, vote trading is usually significant. Every country wants something. If you can get the 56 Islamic votes, you do vote trading. Uh, finally, I would mention the irrational factor, because all of that was realpolitik. You also have uh, the fact that Israel is a Jewish state. And when, you, when I'm there at the UN and you see the only Jewish country in the world is singled out systematically and labeled as a threat to human rights, the threat to human rights, the threat to peace, the threat to women's rights and children's rights. I cannot help but recall that here in Europe, I'm speaking to you from Geneva, that here in Europe, the, when, when there was the plague, the Black Plague, you know, not unlike the virus that we have today, the coronavirus, thousands of people were dying across Europe, and they said, well, you know, who's responsible for the plague? It's the Jews. The Jews have poisoned the wells. The Jews have poisoned And they, you know, went and massacred Jews all across Europe, expelled them, burned them here in Geneva. Uh, and I think it was the 13th century. They expelled the Jews, banished them. Um, and when you, I sit there at the United Nations Human Rights Council, and when it, the only country that has its own agenda item is Israel, more than half the resolutions against Israel, a tiny country, less than 10 million people, not perfect, can be criticized, but is a liberal democracy, has uh, an elected parliament, they have elections all the time, maybe too much, you might say it's a hyper-democracy, multiplicity of parties, Arabs get elected to the, to, the, to the Israeli parliament, they vote in the Israeli parliament, there's Arab Supreme Court judges, there's Arab doctors, not perfect, Arabs are fighting discrimination uh, as, as others fight discrimination. Of course, it's a complicated situation where a number of Arabs identify with the neighboring countries that have repeatedly sought to destroy Israel. It's a complicated situation, but uh, the notion that liberal democratic Israel with all its flaws would be subjected to more resolutions than Syria, Iran, North Korea, and Venezuela put together when other countries like Turkey, China, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Cuba have zero resolutions, it is mind-boggling and is, I would say, pathological and um, reflects you know, a fact that Israel is treated as the Jew among the nations today. And so if you ask me, why do countries go along with it? And it's not only the dictatorships, the European Union countries support a number of these resolutions. At least half, if not more of those are backed by the EU. They say, well, we support international law, which is rather disingenuous. Uh, they should not be supporting uh, this singling out, this obsessive singling out, and it doesn't help Palestinians. No Palestinian has been helped by these one-sided resolutions. If anything, they uh, create polarization. They don't uh, help the situation one bit for Palestinians on the ground, who continue to be ruled by the repressive authoritarian regime of Hamas and the repressive and authoritarian regime of the Palestinian Authority, which beats journalists, beats students, beats protesters, crushes their cameras if they take pictures. Uh, that's the reality, and the United Nations doesn't care about them. If it's not about demonizing Israel, they don't give a damn about Palestinians. That is the sad reality. Well, a couple more questions before we wrap up. Uh, um, so one is, uh, I'm, I've been puzzled that 
China, so there's news about China rounding up a large number, up to a million uh, uh, Uyghur ethnic minority members uh, and putting them in camps. And, and there's, there's evidence to suggest that these are really um, sort of some, some kind of concentration camp, re-education camps. And there, there's been news coverage of this. So it's not a secret and there's, it's something that has to, would be, have to be investigated, I think, if you take seriously the protection of, of rights. And, yet, and, and Uyghurs are a, a Muslim minority group. So one thing that's puzzled me is why hasn't, you know, you know the, the, the Muslim majority countries at the UN who, who kind of vote in a block or, or trade vote, why are they not gone after this issue? Why is this not something of concern to them? Why, and because and, presumably if there is something found, and I think there's strong evidence to think there would be something found that's really wrong with this, this would be a perfect thing for the United Nations Human Rights Council to, to go after. It is. I mean, when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted and the Commission on Human Rights, Human Rights Council were created, it was precisely to protect vulnerable victims like the Uyghur Muslims in China who uh, have had their beards cut, uh, can't practice their religion, uh, forced to eat food that the religion forbids them from eating. Uh, it's real persecution. It's people being herded into camps. The evidence, uh, compelling evidence, shows one million people, maybe more, being herded into camps. We've seen pictures of people, uh, dozens and dozens of detainees uh, outside train tracks, you know, being put on their knees, really terrible things. So, um, that's exactly what the Human Rights Council should be uh, speaking out on and, and taking action on and defending. And yet we see the opposite. There has been zero actions by the Human Rights Council itself, no resolution, no commission of inquiry, no urgent session. And on the contrary, we saw that China managed to get a uh, statement of praise by 50 countries, published as a letter last August 2019. UN Watch published that letter. Uh, it, it, was, it was published as a UN document. We circulated it, I tweeted it out. And I said, shame. And I said, shame the fact that not only that 50 countries of any kind would support China for how it treats their, this, this pop population, these victims, but the fact that maybe up to 20 countries, if not more, were Muslim countries who praised China for their treatment to the Uyghurs. Absolutely uh, despicable. Countries like Syria, Iran, uh, the Palestinian Authority, uh, and many others, Iraq, Lebanon, I believe, uh, their ambassadors signed this letter. Why would a Muslim country sign the letter praising China for persecuting Muslims and for crushing Islam among these, uh, this ethnic minority? And the answer is that the UN is one of the most cynical places I've ever seen. The fact is that uh, it's the very opposite of what a Muslim country should do, but they want China's support. Turkey, which should be the patron of the Uyghurs because the Uyghurs are a Turkic-speaking people, their language is similar to the Turks, and they have a, an ancient connection with, with the Turkish people in Turkey. Um, they, Turkey, Erdogan, a number of years ago, said he would speak out for them, but he, he didn't. And there's newspaper articles documenting how uh, Turkey receives uh, huge amounts of money, loans from China, hundreds of millions of dollars, trade. And that's basically uh, the story, is that these Muslim countries have sold their souls, and not just their souls, but the souls of, of the poor victims uh, in Xinjiang province. Uh, for Chinese trade, Chinese uh, funds, and basically political deals have been made where Islamic countries are selling out their own victimized, you know, Muslim population in, in China. It's really shameful, but that is the reality. 
Well, I just want to close out with so one question, um, well, more of an observation. So I, I saw one of your, uh, I've seen a lot of your speeches at the UN. I, I think they're a study of how to really sort of get the message out and they're really powerful. There's one from 2007 that I, I think went viral. It's not the only one. And one thing that struck me is right after you give this four minute speech, I think, or three and a half minute speech uh, as a representative for your organization, the reaction from the whoever is presiding over this meeting um, was really dumbfounding. I think the, the word um, I, I'll put a link to it in the in the notes to the podcast for people to go watch this. But I mean, the bottom line is my summary is the 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 official listening to your speech basically said, "I'm not going to thank you as the custom requires." And what you've said is inadmissible. I want it stricken out of the record. Now, obviously, you can't do that. It's recorded. But what is it that you said? And what is it that they would consider admissible? What would be okay in that forum, given what you were saying? Right. Well, uh, thanks for raising that speech. It, it was back in 2007. Uh, YouTube had just begun. And uh, it, indeed, that, that speech and, and sort of the exchange that we had, because he spoke with the chair is not supposed to speak after I do. He's really just an umpire. He says, UN watch, then he says, thank you, Amnesty International, next. He's not supposed to respond. So his response was, was uh, unique. Um, and that's why if you look, at, look in the video, at some point I speak and then he speaks and he says, hey, I'm talking to you. That's because I spoke and I have to give up my seat for the next speaker. So I turned around and, and started you know, walking away, which is what you're supposed to do. Um, but it turns out, because he was far away from me, I was in the back of the room, I didn't know that the chair actually took the microphone and started ripping into me. So that's just sort of a backstory there. The other backstory is, indeed, the speech went viral. I think it's been seen maybe 700,000 times or maybe more. And um, it went viral at a time when virality didn't really uh, exist because there was no Facebook, at least uh, adults weren't yet on Facebook then. Basically, it wasn't really Facebook, there wasn't Twitter. It, it went viral by people just sharing emails. So they had to share the YouTube link by email. It's ancient times. Um, but you know what happened in that speech? Uh, and, and why did it go viral? In that speech, I, it was the first year of the new and approved Human Rights Council about which I spoke before. So the Human Rights, Can Human Rights Commission is scrapped. The UN's Kofi Annan admits it's not working. It's, it's a disaster. And we create the new Human Rights Council. Kofi Annan said that the old commission was selective, politicized. He gave the example of Israel, how Israel was singled out at the old Human Rights Commission. So now we meet in the new Human Rights Council. So the, the council begins in June 2006. The founding chair is Luis Alfonso Alba of Mexico, a very uh, polished uh, Mexican diplomat whom I had met a couple of times in the nature of our work. Um, and a rather proud guy, uh, to put it mildly. And, and I'm there for the for the council, begins in June 2006. And in the first few months, all they do is attack Israel. All they do, meaning there was nothing on Syria, there was nothing on anybody else. They had three emergency sessions, one after the other against Israel. And uh, I think they had adopted maybe 10 resolutions on Israel and there was nothing on anyone else. It, it was just, you know, absurd. And that's because America pulled out, the European Union didn't want to introduce resolutions. They wanted to wait until the structure was, was fleshed out, whatever it was. All they were doing was condemning Israel, urgent sessions, one after the other. And this began in June, and I show up in March 2007, so not quite a year later. And I say, you know, here's this Commission on Human Rights, here's how it was created, Eleanor Roosevelt, René Cassin, after World War II, supposed to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, a response to the Nazi atrocities, that's what it was meant to be. And what do we have with this council? 
and you know they, they hear reports about torture and they do nothing. They're indifferent, they're silent. And, uh, and I walk them through what the council has become. And, and, uh, and I say it's become, its response is criminal. And uh, he took it personally, apparently, okay? You know, I wasn't speaking about him. It's a 47 nation body. He doesn't have that much influence. Uh, he's, as I said, he's basically the umpire. Um, and, uh, and he lashed out at me. And he said, and I said the council, there was a dream of Eleanor Roosevelt, but the council had turned into a nightmare. That's how it ended. And he took it personally because he was going around Geneva and the world saying, I'm the founding president of the new and improved human rights council. And if you look actually at the video, more backstory, more backstory is that at the beginning of, of the video, before I even speak, he does this. And he gives me the crook eye and the stink eye. And well, maybe he had seen a copy of my speech that maybe that, maybe that was the reason, but he already didn't like me because if when you open up the International Herald Tribune, which was the New York Times international edition back in 2007, I was having letters to the editor and articles calling out the uh, atrocious um, uh, perversions of the council. And so I think he hated me because we were calling out the truth, whereas he liked to be on the cocktail circuit as a hero. So I think all of that bottled up in him. And when I spoke and, and, and called out the council for what it was, I was the little boy saying the emperor has no clothes and this emperor got upset. So he lashed out at me and he said, if you ever say those things again, I will strike it from the record. Uh, that's why we call it the banned speech. He basically banned me from ever seeing that again. Um, and that's the story there. And, uh, it, the, the irony is, is by him saying, you know, uh, don't you ever say that again. That's what made the video uh, strong and made it go viral. It was seen there were about a dozen editorials around the world. The Wall Street Journal did an editorial about it in Australia and Canada, the New York Post, uh, New York Sun did an editorial on it. And uh, it's, at the time was the most seen, heard about, written about NGO speech in the world. Uh, so that's what happens when people try to cancel well, it. Yeah, I, I appreciate you giving that speech and all the work you've done since then at UN Watch. Uh, thanks for your time today. I really am grateful for it. I'll, I'll put a link in this uh, podcast episode notes for people to go find you. I think one of the best ways to find your work is on Twitter. You're really active uh, at Hillel Neuer. Uh, and we'll put a link to UN Watch as well for people to find out more about your work. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. I want to share a few observations following that illuminating conversation with Hillel Neuer. The first is that the scandal over China's influence at the World Health Organization in the pandemic, its exclusion of Taiwan and all of the machinations involved there, that is utterly shameful. It's an injustice to Taiwan, and it's an, it, it robs the rest of the world of Taiwan's expertise and of Taiwan from getting the knowledge and information that it needs. So I think that's a travesty, a moral travesty. The other part of the story here is, the, is about the UN. And I think when you look at it uh, and you judge it by the actions of the Human Rights Council, which is supposed to be a, an improvement of the failed Human Rights co Commission that existed before it, uh, it, is, it, it is abomination. Uh, this organization, this supposed watchdog of, of protecting rights, sides with dictators and oppressors against their own victims. It is an enabling dictatorships, enabling them to cover up for their crimes, and it is complicit in their uh, murder and their oppression of their own people. And I think the UN is enabling that to happen, which is a monstrous fact. Finally, I want to just note a couple of points of difference I have with Hillel Neuer. I have an incredible respect for the work that he's doing, and I agree with a lot of his 
uh, observations. I, I just want to point out a few places where we part company, and I think they're important. One is uh, he mentioned the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a, a, a document that is um, supposed to guide the United Nations in a lot of its actions and agencies. I have a, an unfavorable view of that document. Although it contains genuine rights that I think are important and, and should be protected, the document also includes rights or claims to rights that I think are at best problematic and at worst they dilute real rights. So I, I don't have as, as favorable view as I think he, he conveyed uh, that he has for this document. And second, um, again, I have... I find the work of Yuan Watch really helpful. It's, it's figured in my research in numerous ways. Uh, but I, I find that I, I disagree with the idea that the UN can be held to live up to its charter principles for the reason that I think, as came out somewhat in the interview, it's not clear that it actually believes in those principles at all and that the UN can be improved, can be remedied. Uh, the evidence I'm seeing is that its shortcomings are are deep and really go to the core of what the UN is about. Uh, so m my view is that um, the function of the UN as a bastion for freedom and, and a protector of rights, I don't think it, it's able to get to the point where it can act on those. And I think it's moral corruption, as we've heard some of it uh, in the conversation. I think it's moral corruption is really deeply rooted and fundamental and in my view, not remediable so uh, arguably its problems are there and they have been from the beginning and that's, that's the view I've articulated uh, elsewhere. So in that sense, I, I think it's important to speak out about what's going on at the UN. I applaud the work that Hillel Neuer and his organization are doing. I differ in, in thinking that I, I don't think you can get the UN to live up to those principles because it's abandoned them. And I think that's the real, that's one of the tragedies here that people need to be aware of. Thank you and see you next time. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.